The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 219. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page where you can watch this podcast at Brian McClanahan. If you don't want to find all those things yourself, just go to my webpage, brianmcclanahan.com. That's B-R-I-O-N, mcclanahan.com. At the top of the page, you'll find all my social media buttons. While you're there, give me an email address, and I will give you a free ebook, Forgotten Founders, and a free audiobook of the same title, read by yours truly. You'll get on my email list. I don't send you a lot of emails, but I do send you some, and next week, you're going to be getting some. So I'm just going to let that hang out there. There's big news coming next week. If you want to support The Brian McClanahan Show, you can go to brianmcclanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way. Help keep these lights on if you're watching the podcast. Help keep the podcast going. You can also support the show by going to mcclanahanacademy.com. It's always free to enroll, and those that do enroll do get the best deals on forthcoming courses. That's a big hint. So you're going to want to get enrolled in the next few days, okay, just to let you know. Uh, I've got uh, already five courses there available for purchase, soon to be six, another big hint. And so you're going to want to get out to mclanahanacademy.com. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to redbubble.com, doing a search for my name. You get all my Brian McClanahan Show logo gear. It's great stuff. And you can go to learntrue, T-R-U-E, learntruehistory.com. There's about 20 classes there. It's my affiliate link for Liberty Classroom. It's a great website. you got a lot of bang for your buck. Philosophy, economics, history, all kinds of cool stuff. I teach there with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, Bob Murphy, uh, Jeff Herbner, a I mean, whole lot of people. Uh, so you're going to want to get on, on that as well. But those are all ways to support The Brian McClanahan Show. And it is a, a great website. McClanahan Academy, great website. Got a lot of good stuff. I'm glad to be back. I took a week off. So we're back here on the show, and I've got two really great episodes, I think, this week. And both are listener-generated. And if you see an article somewhere and you think, man, I really like McClanahan's uh, opinion on that particular piece, send it to me. I actually enjoy that a lot because uh, I'm so focused on doing other things, I don't always see articles that you want me to talk about. And in both of these cases, there are articles that people said, hey, you might enjoy this, or maybe you could talk about this. So, um, this first is a, a uh, the first one for this week, and we've got two, uh, comes from an article in foreignaffairs.com. And the title of the article is A New Americanism, Why a Nation Needs a National Story. It's written by Jill Lepore, and Jill Lepore is a professor of history at Harvard University. She's written a, uh, a new book entitled These Truths. And uh, she's focused a lot in her career on identity and nationalism. And more than that, American history as a subject in and of itself. The story of America. In fact, this These Truths book, if you've gone out and seen it in the bookstore, it's a massive book. It's, it's intended to be an American synthesis, a historical synthesis, and not just that, a comprehensive history of America. So she's doing something that she thought was essential for the American historical profession. She lamented that historians have focused too much time on small monographs 
on the compartmentalization of history, and she thought what we really need are more synthesis. We need bigger histories. And I agree with her. I mean, look, the historical profession is a maze of pedantic monographs. And so having large-scale sweeping histories is a very good idea, unless you're Jill Lepore writing them. Okay, because that's that's the issue. She's not very good at what she says. She makes a lot of mistakes. She even made a mistake in this piece, and they had to correct it, but that's just the one she caught. There's others. And this is the real problem I have with these lefties who start to write histories. Now, first and foremost, her premise is that there is an Americanism. An Americanism, an ism, right? Isms come out of the 19th century. This is nationalism. Uh, and she's railing against, in some ways, nationalism, but then also supporting it. In fact, she thinks America needs nationalism. We don't need right-wing nationalism. We need left-wing nationalism, is her point. Nationalism is good if you control it. In my position, nationalism is bad no matter which side you're on, because there isn't an American nation. Now, she's going to get into all that, and I'm going to critique what she says about certain things. But this little, this little article, I say it's little, it's about 20 pages, is an interesting window into the soul of Jill Lepore. And uh, not just that, into the soul of leftist nationalists. And she concludes it in a very interesting way, um, which I think is just completely laughable. She says several laughable things. Uh, but let's get to the meat of this particular piece. And again, she says, why a nation needs a national story. And she begins talking about... Um, uh, a, a lecture that Carl Degler gave in 1986 um, to the American Historical Association on the meaning of American history. And he says this, quote, We can write history that implicitly denies or ignores the nation-state, but it would be a history that flew in the face of what people who live in a nation-state require and demand. If we historians fail to provide a nationally defined history, others less critical and less informed will take over the job for us, like Jill Lepore. Because she's not very informed, I, I don't think. Now, of course, you know, you could say, well, she's won the Bancroft Prize. She's at Harvard. How can you, schlub, on the Brian McClanahan show, say that this, this esteemed, distinguished professor at Harvard doesn't know anything? Well, I'll, I'll point it out where she doesn't really know anything. And it's indicative of the historical profession. People that don't really know anything get all kinds of great positions. And they shouldn't. But she does. Uh, so, uh, look, we don't need national histories. We don't need a national history of America. And she brings up Bancroft, right? So she's won the Bancroft Prize. She brings up Bancroft, who wrote a multi-volume history of the United States, which was rah-rah jingoistic. It was George Bancroft. Um, and, of course, she also uses Arthur Schlesinger Jr. and Richard Hofstetter. Um, look, Hofstetter had some interesting things to say. Schlesinger Jr. never uh, his book on uh, the Jackson, the Jacksonian era is ridiculous. Um, Bancroft suffered from all kinds of issues himself in his multi-volume history. But she does say that, look, in the 1970s, these national histories fell out of favor. We didn't want to have a national history of the United States. We didn't want any of that. What we really wanted were these uh, you know, histories that focused on some little minutia of history, and that's how you get your dissertation written, and that's how you get a job. It's how you get tenure. You write something, write a couple of journal articles. And I always was disgusted with, with this stuff when I was in graduate school, and I made that clear. I didn't like reading journal articles. I still really don't like reading journal articles because I think they're mostly worthless. 
I do like reading sweeping histories. I'd like to see the scope and what people actually write about things. Um, their biographies are good, but when you're writing about slave hairstyles and how that how that's indicative of slave resistance, this is just stupidity. But this is the kind of stuff you get. Or you're writing about, um, I don't know, take your pick of some you know labor group in uh, in uh, somewhere in Maine in the uh, 1830s and how that's important and, and, and drawing conclusions for all of American history on this. I mean, it's just ridiculous. But this is what we do. Um, but I will say this. I mean, people are still interested in focusing on regional histories. I mean, look, there are Southern Studies programs in every university in the country. And that's because the South is the specimen that has to be studied under the magnifying glass and understood that way. Uh, which is ridiculous because it should be the North is being studied because that's always been the odd section. And, I, and I'll explain, I'll actually get into this in this particular piece. She doesn't know what she's talking about. Okay, so um, she writes this few pages in. Maybe it's too late to restore a common history, too late for historians to make a difference. But is there any option other than to try to craft a new American history, one that could foster new a new Americanism? Now, what, is, pray tell, is that Americanism going to be? It's going to be leftist nationalism, because that's the new Americanism. You see, clear-eyed historians, she actually uses this term, clear-eyed historians like W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass are going to pave the way, show the way for new Americanism, because they understood what America was. They understood it. Uh, I think you could say this with the Claremont Institute. You could say this with the Straussians. It's the same thing. In fact, what you're getting with that is neoconservatism. Now, Lepore is a leftist, but she's a neoconservative, essentially. Same position on American nationalism. You see, you can take the neoconservatives, and you can take the leftists, and you can put them together, and they say the same exact things. The nationalists of all stripes, this is why I have said on this podcast over and over again, nationalism is the enemy of the original Constitution, it's the enemy of the Federal Republic. It's the enemy of America. It always has been. It always will be. It was in 1789. It is today. Because you see, Americans, as she points out, were not nationalists, even though she does say that there was some nationalism there. So let me get into her history. And this is where she shows her complete ignorance of early American history, even though she's a quote-unquote expert on early American history. She says, The United States is different from other nations. Every nation is different from every other, and its nationalism is different too. To review, a nation is a people with common origins, and a state is a political community governed by laws. Well, that's not exactly right. In fact, those definitions are just completely stupid. A nation is not a people with common origins. A nation, by traditional definition, is a people of a common uh, ethnic, racial, religious uh, background, cultural background. Uh, language matters, that is a nation, not just a people with common origins. That's way too simplistic and not entirely accurate at all. And a state is a political community governed by laws. No, a state, as Jefferson and the founding generation understood it, is a sovereign political entity, and sovereign is key to this. Sovereign political entity. It is governed by laws, but it is a sovereign political entity. A nation-state, she says, is a political community governed by laws that unites a people with a supposedly common ancestry. No, 
a nation state is not just not tested with common ancestry. It has to fit with that definition of nation. A people tied together by the things that make up a nation, which is, again, language, custom, religion, race. That's what makes a nation. You can have nations within nations. You can have, in a state, you can have several nations. So a nation state would be one of a single nation in a sovereign political entity. When nation states arose out of city-states and kingdoms and empires, they explained themselves by telling stories about their origins, stories meant to suggest that everyone in, say, the French nation had common ancestors, when they, of course, did not. Now, I think you can make a case that in the case of France, the Frankish kingdom was generally the same culture. I mean, look, you had the Normans eventually come in in the northern part of France, but the Frankish kingdom was the French people. And so... This is silly when she says things like this. As I wrote in my book, These Truths, which she's trying to push here, very often historians of nation-states are little more than myths, or sorry, histories of nation-states, are little more than myths that hide the, the seams that stitch the nation to the state. Okay. Uh, true and not true. But in the American case, she continues, the origins of the nation can be found in those seams. Here's where it gets really funny. When the United States declared its independence in 1776, it became a state. Now think about that statement for a second. When the United States declared its independence in 1776, it became a state. That's not what it was. When the 13 states declared their independence in 1776, they became a federal republic of 13 independent states, as Thomas Jefferson said. So she's already misinterpreted the entire founding period. How ridiculously stupid is this? Now, I've not read her book, These Truths. I've picked it up and glanced over it, and it looks, there's parts of it look okay. But for the most part, if it has this kind of history in it, it's going to be ridiculously stupid. But what made it a nation? The fiction, I say nothing, the fiction that its people shared a common ancestry was absurd on its face. She's correct about this. They came from all over. Well, sort of. They came from all over Great Britain, for the most part. Um, the dominant cultures, as David Hackett Fisher has pointed out, were all British in origin. It's They shared different cultures, though. The Celts, the Puritans, the Quakers. You had Germans, of course, in that. Uh, and then uh, the Cavaliers. Predominantly British. But still, or at this time, English, but eventually by the 18th century, British, but still uh, different in their cultural background. And then, of course, you did have Africans, um, you did have some French, you had Spanish, you did have some people thrown in. But the dominant culture, cultures, I should say, were certainly British. Uh After having waged a war against Great Britain, just about the last thing they wanted to celebrate was their Britishness. Well... Not necessarily. I mean, their Britishness is what made them who they were. Their Britishness, the Cavalier culture, is what made the South what it was. The Puritanical culture of New England is what made New England what it was. And nobody was really talking about Americanism. This was fabricated. She does point that out. I will give her credit for that. Long after independence, most Americans saw the United States not as a nation, but to the name as a confederation of states. 
Well, that's very true. They were accurate about this. That's what made arguing for ratification of the Constitution an uphill battle. It's also why the Constitution's advocates called themselves Federalists when they were, in fact, Nationalists. Well, this isn't necessarily true. Uh, the Nationalists were there, and I think she's getting on to something here. The Nationalists were there, certainly. But the Friends of the Constitution were, I think many of them, real Federalists. They thought that the Federal Republic would survive. There were Nationalists among them. Alexander Hamilton, James Wilson, uh, Robert Morris, Governor Morris. Certainly there were Nationalists. And certainly they hid that Nationalism because uh, they didn't think that it would ever get passed. If they became open Nationalists, nobody would support the document. In the sense they were proposing to replace a federal system under the Articles with a national system. No, they weren't. That's not what they were proposing. They were proposing a federal republic. That's the only way the Constitution was ratified. I don't know what planet this woman is from. Well, I mean, I understand because most historians don't know anything. Even in this case, she doesn't know anything about the federal... Look, the Friends of the Constitution, James Wilson, the Nationalist, stood out on the Pennsylvania State House yard and said, You know what? We have a federal republic, essentially. That's what he's saying, is arguing that this is why you should ratify the Constitution, because it has very limited federal powers. The states remain. The states remain the central part of this government. We, this, this isn't a national government. Don't worry. Don't worry, people. Don't worry. We're not creating a national government. And so that was bought hook, line, and sinker by the general population of the American states who said, okay, we got a stronger central government, but it's not a national government. In fact, that was explicitly rejected, rejected in the Philadelphia Convention. Explicitly rejected. We are not creating a national government. And that phrase was, that, that very phrase was used, we're not creating a national government. In the ratifying debates in the state conventions and in the public documents for ratification. But no, no, not according to Jill Lepare. No, no, that's not true. And here we go. When John Jay insisted in the Federalist Papers, number two, that Providence has been pleased to give this once-connected country to one united people, a people descended from the same ancestors, speaking the same language, professing the same religion, attached to the same principles of government, very similar in their manners and customs. He was whistling in the dark. Well, this is true. John Jay was not speaking accurately of the American experience, so she at least does say that. It was this lack, it was the, I'm sorry, it was the lack of these similarities that led Federalists such as Noah Webster to attempt to manufacture a national character by urging Americans to adopt distinctive spelling. Language, as well as government, should be national, Webster wrote in 1789. America should have her own distinct form, all the, should, should be, should, should have her own distinct from all the world. That got the United States favor instead of favor, F-A-V-O-U-R. It did not, however, make the United States a nation. And by 1828, when Webster published his monumental American Dictionary of the English Language, he did not include the word nationalism, which had no meaning or currency in the United States in the 1820s. Not until the 1840s, when European nations were swept up in what has been called the Age of Nationalities, did Americans come to think of themselves belonging to a nation with a destiny. Um, yeah, I mean, look, Napoleon unleashed this on Europe, and then, of course, uh, but there were Americans who were nationalists, and they did use the term nation. It was used by Americans, even in the founding period, but it was explicitly rejected. There was no national government. That was clear in the Philadelphia Convention and in the ratifying debates.
Then she gets into the fact the United States might be something other than the nation-state. It's a state-nation. The state creates a nation. A civic religion, in many ways, creates the nation. And this is what the neoconservatives essentially say. It's the same exact thing. This is what the Straussians from the Claremont Institute say. The, the state, this civic religion, this American state worship of Abraham Lincoln, the demigod, that creates the American nation. It's the common, uh, the common history. This is where Lepore is getting to that creates the nation. And that's common history. It's the history that we all have to accept that we have certain truths that the Declaration of Independence is a founding document. And when I say it's a founding document, it's this part of the Declaration. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. It's the proposition nation of the Declaration that makes it part of the civic religion. All of that is just bunk. Complete garbage. Garbage. It's all garbage. Because it's untrue. She goes on, one way to turn a state into a nation is to write its history. Exactly. To lie, essentially. To lie. Uh, to fabricate. And this is what Lepore is doing here. She's fabricating... She's very good at fabricating, and I'm going to get into some of the fabrications. So she goes on, on down the line. She gets to the Union and the Confederacy. Now, this is where it gets fun. The American Civil War was a struggle over two competing ideas of the nation-state. No, it wasn't over two competing ideas of the nation-state. It was over two competing ideas of federalism. One was saying that we can impose our will on you because we have a single central national government. The other is saying, we don't. <laughs> uh, one was adhering to the founding principles, the South. The other wasn't, the North. In the antebellum United States, Northerners, and especially Northern abolitionists, drew a contrast between Northern nationalism and Southern sectionalism. Well, see, here's where she doesn't understand. It's wrong. Northern nationalism was a disguise for northern sectionalism. There was no nationalism in the north. It was all sectionalism. It was whatever benefited the north. From the very beginning, it was what benefited the north. You look at Daniel Webster. Daniel Webster was not a nationalist. He was a northern sectionalist. You look at Fisher Ames. He wasn't a nationalist. He was a sectionalist. And all of these northerners wanted to secede when their vision of northern sectionalism did not dominate the government. When Virginia dominated the government, northerners wanted out. This is why they tried to block Jefferson's election. It's why they talked about secession in 1794. It's why they talked about secession in 1803. It's why they talked about secession in 1815. It's why abolitionists were talking about secession in the 1840s. They wanted out of the Union because they thought that particularly with the Louisiana Purchase, they would never win another election. And the South would destroy their own sectional interests. There was no Northern nationalism. It was Northern sectionalism. This is the great lie of American history. Perpetuated by people like Jill Lepore. Then she gets into... John C. Calhoun and Stephen Douglas. Um, she continues, You must cultivate a national instead of a sectional patriotism, urged one Michigan congressman in 1850. But Southerners were nationalists too. It's just that their nationalism was what we would now be termed illiberal or ethnic as opposed to the Northerners' liberal or civic nationalism. See, civic nationalism is good. Leftist nationalism is what she wants because it's inclusive. 
It's just about the government. It's not about people. You can't have civic... You can't have nationalism without people. This is where it gets stupid. This distinction has been subjected to much criticism on the grounds it's nothing more than a way of calling one kind of nationalism good or another bad. But the nationalism of the North and that of the South were in fact different, and much of U.S. history has been a battle between them. Ours is a government of the white man, the American statesman John C. Calhoun declared in 1848. This government was made by our fathers on the white basis, the American politician Stephen Douglas said in 1858. It was made by the white men for the benefit of white men and their posterity forever. And then uh, then she brings in Lincoln. She says, no, no, Lincoln didn't believe that. Lincoln said that Douglas was wrong because he searched all through the documents and he can't find anything that said it's just for the white men. But, of course, Lincoln did essentially say in other areas that he believed in the superiority of the white race. <laughs> and that the white ra- so, But she doesn't mention that. I mean, no, 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 you can't say anything about that. can't say anything about Lincoln and which Lerone Bennett has pointed out in that, uh, you know, Lincoln's white dream, uh, that Lincoln was a white supremacist. He was. He was. She continues, No matter, the founders of the Confederacy answered, we will craft a new constitution based on white supremacy. Was the old constitution not based on white supremacy? I mean, Lincoln said it wasn't, but can you find any evidence that it wasn't? Uh, because the Republican Party, as Eric Foner, that radical right-winger, has said, uh, is, was about free soil, free labor, free men, which they meant free white soil, free white labor, free white men. The Republican Party was the white man's party. This is how they sold it over and over again. The Democrat Party was the party of miscegenation. It was a party of the mixing of the races. This is what it all came down to. Uh, but... You know, we have this, uh, no, 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 the Confederacy was all about white supremacy. Well, so was the Union. There was nothing different about the two at all, in any way. And, of course, because Alexander Stevens gave his cornerstone speech, that proves it conclusively. Then she gets into Chinese exclusion, and uh, but she brings up Frederick Douglass and how uh, he says we have a composite nation. A composite nation, that's what we have. Now, she continues, Emancipation and Reconstruction, the historian and civil rights activist W.E.B. Du Bois would write in 1935, was the finest effort to achieve democracy this world has ever seen. But that effort has been betrayed by white northerners and white southerners who patched the United States back together by inventing a myth that the war was not fought over slavery at all, but merely a struggle between the nation and the states. There's no myth about that. This is clear from the beginning of the war. This is what Lincoln said. Where's the myth? Where's the myth? This is what Lincoln said it was about. Not, I mean, not some historian writing about this. Northerners and Southerners, I think, would know. They partook in the event. It wasn't until ending slavery was beneficial for a war aim that it even became an aim of the war. We fell under the leadership of those who would compromise with truth in the past in order to make peace in the present. No, we didn't, but this is where Du Bois is wrong. His history is bunk. Stupid. Now, uh, she gets into some other things uh, here. I, I want to skip all that, but she does present something that's really funny. This shows her lack of historical rigor because you can go in about two minutes online and find a potential problem with a quote she uses. 
In the years before the United States entered World War II, a fringe even supported Hitler. Charles Coughlin, a priest, near-presidential candidate, and widely popular broadcaster, took to the radio to preach anti-Semitism and admiration for Hitler and the Nazi party. In 1939, about 20,000 Americans, some dressed in Nazi uniforms, gathered in Madison Square Garden, decorated with swastikas and American flags with posters declaring a mass demonstration for true Americanism, where they announced the New Deal as the Jew Deal. Now, quote, Hitler, for his part, expressed admiration for the Confederacy and regret that, quote, the beginnings of a great new social order based on the principles of slavery and inequality were destroyed by the war. Now, she's not the first historian to quote this. And where you, when you start seeing it, guess where you find it? Coates. Tanisha Coates has used it. And that's where she's getting it from. But not just that. There's been another, a couple other historians have used it. it was, it's been used in the Washington Post and popular media. But do a search for this particular quote, and you find something very interesting about it. Hitler probably never said it. And he probably never said it because the book that it comes from, there's no actual surviving manuscript of it, and the person who wrote it simply made it up because the translation is awful. And not just that, there was no evidence that this stuff was even backed by reality. We don't know if Hitler actually said this. In fact, the evidence is he probably didn't. But we do know that Hitler did support nationalism and the nation-state over federalism. We know that he supported centralization at the expense of states. And we know that he essentially favored Lincoln and the outcome of the war based on his preference for strong centralization. We do know that Hitler favored those things. But that he said this, very, very suspect. But here she cites it. Uh, she says that, you know, in the South, they were talking about Nazi propaganda, talking about repealing the 14th and 15th. Then, of course, of course Charles Lindbergh, who not irreverently has become famous by, had become f famous by flying across the Atlantic alone, bases nationalism on geography. And of course, uh, that's Lindbergh's a bad guy. Uh, but I, I want to. She she go, she goes on to say that we've had a decline of national history. We need more national history, uh, and um, she says we need a new American history. What would a new Americanism and a new American history look like? They might look rather a lot like the comp composite nationalism imagined by Douglas. Frederick Douglass, and the clear out stories written by Du Bois. They might take as their starting point the description of the American experiment and its challenges offered by Douglass in 1869, a government founded upon justice and recognizing the equal rights of all men, claiming no higher authority for existence or sanction for its laws and nature, reason, and the regularly ascertained will of the people, steadily refusing to put its sword and purse in the service of any religious creed or family as a standing offense to most of the governments of the world and to some narrow and bigoted people among ourselves. Uh, she's saying we essentially would have a civic religion uh, based on the Declaration, which is neoconservatism. I mean, this is what they want. Frederick Douglass is their guy, right? And he's the guy of the left. So what we're facing here is a complete fabrication of American history because the Declaration, that one line of the Declaration was not the basis of American government. The last paragraph certainly was, but not that part of the Declaration that everyone knows. And she concludes, the history of the United States at the present time does not seek to answer any significant questions, Degler told his audience some three decades ago. If American historians don't start asking and answering those sorts of questions, other people will, he warned. 
They'll echo Calhoun. <gasps> Not Calhoun. That would be great if they echoed Calhoun in a lot of ways. I mean, look, Calhoun is one of the most original political thinkers in American history. We would be better off to have a real federalism that championed by Calhoun or Stephen Douglas or Father Coughlin. You see, because Calhoun and Father Coughlin are the same. <gasps> That's really a non sequitur. But to people like Lepore and their imagination, they're the same. They're the same. This is how, how messed up these people actually are. They'll lament American carnage. They'll call immigrants animals. In other states, uh, well, I'm not going to use the word, blank hole countries. They'll adopt the slogan, America first. Ooh. They'll say they can make America great again. They'll call themselves nationalists. Their history will be a fiction. You mean like what you're telling us. They will say that they alone love this country. They will be wrong. So she says uh, on the 26th of February, an earlier version of this article misidentified the U.S. president who began building the liberal and national order after World War II. It was Harry Truman, not Franklin Roosevelt. Yeah, we could, we could like add a correction appended to this whole dang thing. Uh, from the beginning, this article is a bunch of trash and it really shouldn't even be, shouldn't pay attention to it. Oh yeah, and don't read my book is what she should say because it's also garbage. Now, um, this is the problem though with popular histories like this. Uh, I like popular histories, but when historians try to try to venture into this stuff and they show their weaknesses in several areas, which she does, uh, it makes you realize that the profession has got real issues. Um, and Jill Lepore has got real issues uh, with her telling of American history. I think she's right in some ways that nationalism is is a problem, but she she's also wrong that it it's a solution. Um, and she's she's correct that there wasn't really an American nation, but she doesn't even understand early American history, something that she supposedly specializes in. She doesn't understand it. At least not from this particular piece. But people read this. This is, I mean, popular consumption. So be, oh well, this is what this is what Harvard thinks. So let's, uh, yeah, this is this is right. So I'm hoping to set the record straight with this. And uh, again, this is thank thanks to the uh, individual who sent this to me because it's so important to, to go through these things and point out all these stupidity inherent weaknesses in these articles. So I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. I will see you next time for another episode that's on a similar topic, but from the neoconservative sides. We're going to have fun with this. We got the lefties, we got the neoconservatives. I'll see you next time.